You are listening to Fruitless, a podcast hosted by me, Josiah Sutton. This is episode 13, To Tradition and Back, featuring Joseph. Exciting episode of Fruitless. I'm joined today by Joseph. Uh, hello, Joseph. Hey, Josiah. Uh, Joseph is a yeah. On the first time of this podcast. Of this podcast, yeah. I was gonna say Joseph was on uh, on an old VLVC episode that maybe I'll maybe I'll bump onto this feed again at some point uh, about Jack Chick. So it's like I think you're cementing yourself as someone who kind of shows it up to talk about weird uh, religious stuff. Because that's, that's yeah. what we're doing again today. <laughs> it's long um, been an interest of mine. Like, back in... Back growing up evangelical, my dad got into, like, the evangelical anti-cult movement, which called out, like, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses a lot. And, like, I... Oh, yeah. He had a bunch oh, of books yeah, lying yeah. around about that. So, like, I I really... got kind of fixated on those things from an early age. Yeah. I'm trying to remember... My, my dad was is really into a couple of those guys, but I'm blanking on, blanking on the names. That's an interesting way to kind of introduce you to it. I I I think we both have just like a fascination and weird stuff, you know. Yeah, like, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, you uh, you wanted to come on and talk about the the evangelical Orthodox Church and kind of some personal history with that and uh, yeah, a local the, church here. Yeah, in, in where you're at. Yeah, yeah, it's a church I attended when I was in college uh was formerly affiliated with the evangelical orthodox church um it became uh part of the antiochian orthodox church later but that's really the condensed version of the history is that one denomination just straight up joined the antiochian orthodox church yeah well and and i think if somebody's like familiar with christian denominations off the top of your head automatically i feel like the, the evangelical orthodox at least for yeah. me, just sets off a bunch of bells in my head where I'm like, wait, what is that? Like, that's oh, a yeah. combination that I, I have no idea what to do with. So let's look at Can we kind of break down to like where each aspect of those two words kind of comes from with this movement? Yeah. So um, they were evangelicals in the beginning um, because of their uh, connection to Campus Crusade for Christ. Like that was the organization that they came for. I believe it's now called Crew. Yeah, they they thought the crusade thing might not be the. <laughs> so they just took like the first syllable of the most offensive word and made it their made it their whole thing. Um, yeah, that yeah. was their rebrand. Yeah, but in 1968 they were called Campus Crusade for Christ, and uh, they were an evangelical organization led by Bill Bright, kind of a parachurch campus ministry. And Peter Gilquist was a guy who became really dissatisfied with the parachurch ministry aspect of it. Like mm -hmm. he felt it wasn't connecting people into actual churches. It was just sort of creating this thing you do while you're in college. Um, right. Which is right. in a weird way what it became for me, but uh, <laughs> that's uh, not where most of the denomination wound up. Right. So it, it kind of comes out of this like old evangelical, like, yeah, the, the, uh, evangelizing at colleges kind of thing. I, I know it vaguely has a relationship like the old days in the sixties and seventies that had this relationship with like the Jesus movement and kind of the, um, the restorationist impulse, like the kind of yeah. back to the basics Protestants kind of want to return to what the original faith was like. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so then how did those folks land in Eastern Orthodoxy? <laughs> well, it really began with the restorationist impulse. Like that's, I don't yeah. know, something I find fat restorationism in general is just something I can find fascinating in that like it can lead to like totally mainline denominations like the disciples of Christ, it can lead to Mormons, and it can lead to the community of Christ, who are both of those things. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> right, yeah. at all. Um yeah. but the evangelical Orthodox Church uh began with that that idea. Like, let's go back to the basics, let's try to restore the the original church as as it was, but then they so also began to accept the notion that, well, maybe the point of this isn't to accept, um, you know, this, that this discontinuity, this idea that's prevalent in a lot of restorationist churches that like there was a time when the church sort of 
disappeared from the earth. Like the true church was not with us. And they're like, I don't think God would allow that. So what does mm-hmm. that mean for us? Yeah. Yeah, right. Because that's that's the problem with a lot of Protestant reformate or restorationists is because yeah, they they have to eventually believe that that the church went away. <laughs> yeah. And that seems wrong. That's always felt wrong to me, even as a reformed kid growing up. Yeah. And I, I was definitely drawn to that idea when I was first drawn to orthodoxy. Like mm-hmm. that just sort of made intuitive sense to me. And that's um and so initially I looked into Catholicism. Um, but then just like doing more reading and like finding out more things, like I, I became attracted to the Orthodox side and that's mm-hmm. essentially what happened to these former campus crusade leaders. And so what they, like they, they studied church history and they formed in 1975, what they called the new covenant apostolic order, which they renamed the evangelical Orthodox church. Yeah. So, so what are the, uh, what are they in communion with? Just like the whole Eastern Orthodox church or are they kind so, of like a sect? They started out as just a sect, like just like another essentially Protestant sect that happened to like adopt a lot of Orthodox practice, although kind of syncretically and with a lot of innovation at first that they, as they did, went into more dialogue with Orthodox people. They brought it into greater conformity with Orthodox practice. Hmm, okay. um, but like it was a long process of dialogue. Like in 1987, uh, they were received in mass, like. 1700 of their 2500 members um it was a fairly small group but they did have like a nationwide presence uh, they were in memphis and they were also in you know california throughout the midwest and they were received in mass their clergy were received first as laymen and then like ordained in mass shortly thereafter okay yeah um but they were brought into full communion with the antiochian orthodox church which is in turn in communion with the Russian Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church in America, uh, the uh, Greek Orthodox Church. Did I say that one? Uh, no, no. Uh, Romanian, Ukrainian, Bulgarian, etc. Ah, so it's it's interesting though. So so what kind of like syncretisms still like, I guess, remain in the church? Like by the time you know, because this happened what in like you said the seventies and eighties. By yeah. like the time you were like attending. Did did it have like a charismatic wing to it still and stuff like that? Or was it at that point basically an Orthodox church? It was basically an Orthodox church at that point. Like wow, the, okay. the lead pastor was part of the EOC, but like he had pretty much brought himself into full conformity. Like I guess you could say his preaching style still had some of that old Baptist influence. Um and he but like that's really about the extent of it, because that's really about the extent of where creative innovation is, la- is allowed within a strict Orthodox church, like liturgically, mm-hmm. they're probably one of the most conservative groups there is. Like everything is still done all enchanting. It's it it feels like you're part of something very ancient, um, in in a really compelling way. But like you know, everything is pretty strictly regimented. Like there were controversies when the EOC was sort of absorbed gradually because many of them developed a sort of pan-Orthodox practice and. Mm they were forced to kind of be in conformity with Arab practice. Okay. Um, that's the bishop who ultimately accepted them after they were rejected by uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople. That's yeah. That's, that's all super interesting. And like, I, I, um, I can like see it. I can see how it happened because I, I the brief period of my life that I was, per, I was interested in orthodoxy was during kind of like a, I don't know my my I had a really really Protestant mentality where I was like you know the problem with Christianity is we we got away from its like it's you know mere basics it's you know meaning and so like yeah. c- Catholicism was impossible to me to even imagine that because that seemed to represent everything that you know like it oh it's you know come away from but something about the Orthodox Church felt like that that was the one of the liturgical things that like oh I'm going back to the to the basics, you know? Yeah. They, they seem like, to have more of a claim to that, which I, I don't know if they really should or not, but they do kind of have that claim. Um, in a yeah. Lot of heads. I mean, like there is a more complex history than just like, this is what uh, St. John Chrysostom gave us in the fourth century. And this is what we do today. Like there has been innovation over the centuries, but it's been like relatively slow. I would say compared to like, you know, what right. you might see at a Novus Ordo mass, for example. Um, right. And also just like the discovery 
like as for the evangelical orthodox church like it began with this um this process of like intensive study and like they've got really into church history and they found oh the earliest christians like they worship liturgically like we can see that in like justin martyr you can see that in all these other very early writers yeah um, and you know they had a very high view of the sacraments which is another thing the uh the eoc adapted uh pretty heavily although initially as they had kind of developed their own liturgy uh they developed the novel practice of blessing the bread communally and then breaking into small groups to eat it hmm. which, which is like kind of a still. yeah yeah that's that would be a no-no i think in the orthodox church right well like the the book i'm using as a source uh is turning to tradition by father oliver herbell like this is where i learned a lot about the eoc's history like um more so than mm-hmm. from being part of it really like i never really got to get dive deep into that with father john foy or anyone else um but that book yeah it says like this is like kind of contradictory to the entire way orthodox think about communion like it's supposed to be shared with the, the entire church it's not an opportunity to fragment you know it's an opportunity to come together right right um but obviously the practice was dropped in time and in time they were convinced to start using icons um like they you know their practice evolved relatively quickly until it was brought into total conformity with like the anti-orthodox church yeah yeah that's really interesting well and it's interesting that the members decided to do it the way they did that there because it wasn't like they just chose to um just all convert to orthodoxy you know what i mean like directly like it was a process of starting their own church and then integrating the church eventually yeah yeah which that itself that that itself is very interesting I, i don't know like yeah yeah I mean, it feels like Protestant history is full of a lot of denominational mergers, you know? You know, the Methodists and the United Brethren just off the top of my head. like Yeah, well, or, you know, I can speak from my own um, church, the Episcopal Church and the ELCA, um, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, both have um, an ecumenical kind of merged relationship at this point. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, which was a pretty easy process to my understanding because they were both yeah. liberal mainline. The only thing I, I might be incorrect on this, but um, the only thing I think they had to do was the the Episcopal Church has, you know, like an apostolic notion of, of uh, bishops and priests and all that. So uh, and the ELCA didn't. So they just had to like go and like lay hands on every ELCA like priest. <laughs> <laughs> okay and that was about the only thing they had to do okay yeah this was like a, definitely a much more complicated process because initially the eoc sought to um be just received in whole into the orthodox church um uh, without mm. having to have hands laid on anything they laid hands on each other and their initial belief was that at that point they received a sort of charismatic apostolic succession mm. oh like, uh, right yeah they okay, were received yeah. into the apostolic succession by the Holy Spirit, and that gave them a great amount of, you know, authority. And, like, there are some who have criticized the early group as cult-like, which I wasn't around for that, so I can't really testify to it. I will say I did not get that impression of the modern Orthodox Church. Like, there's definitely areas where I differ from it, but a cult-like is not a description mm-hmm. I'd use. Well, I but I could see I, I don't know about the EOC, but like just thinking of campus crusades and some of the campus ministries I've like seen and been around, that's that's kind of a problem that kind of yeah. forms in a lot of those environments. So I could see the early days when it still has that kind of thing. And going especially on. when you've also got these notions that uh we should have archbishops and like we should have like right. a very strict hierarchy and we should be calling priest father and like mm-hmm. Like having these, like you know, more hierarchical notions that, like, they effectively had to tone down in order to become accepted as part of orthodoxy. Um, oh, so they were even more intense about that stuff than the Eastern Orthodox. In terms Orthodox. of like notions of like church authority, yes. Wow, that's interesting because they because doesn't the, I mean, it's it's not as strong as the Catholic Church, but the Eastern Orthodox Church does have, like, if you compare yeah. it to a Baptist church, it has a pretty strong sense of hierarchy. That's, oh, that's interesting. Um, it's interesting they went so hard on that. Yeah. And I mean, just like kind of in some potentially abusive ways, even like there's been testimony from former members that um, they were told to divorce spouses who weren't ready to join the church or mm. 
Probably the worst thing you ever had in turning tr- to tradition about it. You want you want the juicy gas? Oh yeah, is, of course we do. <laughs> um, is that uh, they encouraged someone who is diabetic uh, to stop taking their medication? Holy shit! On belief of like personal revelation from God, and that they 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 still had a lot of charismatic impulses that they had to like tone down. Like I remember in Francis's episode of this podcast talking about orthodoxy. Like he talked mm. about, like he came to reject charismatic Christianity as just like you know being too open to the idea of personal revelation from God. Um, and yeah, these guys definitely had that kind of openness that he would critique and say was absent from orthodoxy. But in their case, it led them to orthodoxy. Well, that that's that's interesting because yeah, th- that kind of stuff sounds more uh, charismatic to me. That kind of abuse. Yeah. Um, they're like, Oh, God told me you need to stop taking your medicine. <laughs> yeah, no, they definitely like, they came from that world and they still had some of the markings of it. And they still tried to consciously maintain that to some extent, because like they weren't fully integrated into the Antiochian Orthodox church. They were like a special, uh, vicariat, I believe is the word. So like they were under all under one Bishop across the country. And, um, they had kind of the right to retain some of their self-consciously evangelical identity. They did things like uh, door-to-door ministries, you know, sure, um, like kind of kind of classic evangelical shit. And hmm. like, and so, so, but in the pursuit of like bringing people into the Orthodox Church, yeah. So, so did the Orthodox kind of? I don't know. Kind of see that in the same way as like when a. Uh, uh, like a, a church holds on to like folk practices or whatever, you know, like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think, yeah, I think it was kind of understood like that. Like there's, that's really interesting. Huh? In one of the books I read when I was looking into orthodoxy for the first time is it's a, it's a, con- a conversion narrative from a former Episcopalian, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, she talked about how like Thanksgiving technically falls during a fasting period because it's before Christmas. But like exemption is given for local tradition. And she also just mm. kind of talked about how Americans hate to think about Thanksgiving as a local tradition. Like it's, it's so widely celebrated here, but it's just like, yeah, here's a quirky folk thing. Thanksgiving. And yeah. Yeah. But like <laughs> there was, I think concern from a lot of Orthodox because it's like one of the few organizations that like people have to sell, you know, to kind of feel connected to their ethnic identity in the U S in a lot of ways. Like, there was even a Greek government official who, because the Antiochians were not like the first choice. They first went to, like they were first in dialogue with the OCA, the Orthodox Church in America, which is what became of the Russian Orthodox Church and is now de facto independent from them. De jure is more controversial, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. So they first tried with the Orthodox Church in America. Then at one point they were advised to speak with the ecumenical patriarch and um, who like, technically oversees only a very small community in Turkey proper because he's not allowed to be the patriarch of Greece by the Turkish government. Mm. Um, but like is considered kind of the, the spiritual head of the Greek Orthodox world. And people were like concerned that if these people were, were uh, brought into the Greek Orthodox church, it would damage uh, the, their ability to like conserve Hellenic culture in, in the Americas and that, it would essentially be like, you know, a colonizing mission of this little little ethnic community, which is hmm. interesting because, I don't know, it is kind of cool to see a bunch of like primarily white people in the South, like integrate themselves into an Arab tradition. Like, yeah, yeah. That was interesting to me. Like, you know, they call the priest's wife Korea. Uh, um, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. They definitely pronounced it wrong. Uh, but that was <laughs> that's what they were going for, I believe. You know, they like used the Arab chants. They were under the jurisdiction of of the patriarch of Antioch, who lives in Syria or right. did. Okay, I think yeah. he's in exile currently. Or not well, in the country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for for other geopolitical reasons, I assume. <laughs> yeah, when I was when I was there, he was still in Syria, I believe. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I, I think that's that's incredibly interesting that 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 integration process was. Um, yeah. And there yeah. were like 
Arabs who went to the church as well. Like it wasn't like an exclusively white evangelical thing. It was just like the majority of the members were converts from Protestantism. Like that continued to be the the base of their membership. Mm-hmm. Like that convert zeal that like the EOC really uh represented when they came into orthodoxy. Like that's had a huge impact numerically. Like 70% of the priests in the Antiochian archdiocese, these might be old statistics, but 70% of their priests were converts. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I've definitely seen seen that. Um, it's 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 interesting. Orthodoxy in America is an interesting thing that I'm sure there's some good writing about that I haven't read. But I would definitely recommend turning to tradition if you're. Interested. Yeah, yeah, I might have to check it out because I, I think there's something to um, I don't know because Orthodoxy is like a minority. Like you know, the Catholic mm-hmm. Church obviously you know like America is a Protestant country basically. Yeah. Um, like the Catholics have played a role and they're there, but Orthodoxy primarily represents, you know, like immigrant groups, and like Catholics you mentioned. Have always had like large enclaves, at least. Like there's no yeah. version of St. Louis where like everything, like, right? All the old money is Catholic and like there's all this Catholic shit everywhere. There's, yeah. The, yeah. There, there's no like, and, you know, this is also kind of why, like, I, I do think it, it plays a role in why, like, um, you know, more more hippie Christian Protestants might be more likely to become Orthodox and Catholic in yeah. the U.S. In part because it's like the minority religion. It's the yeah, kind of feels like the you know, it doesn't feel like it represents power in the yeah, U.S. It's at like all. you never hear about like the Orthodox bishops like issuing proclamations of, that were shitty, even though even though yeah, they in did, the situation they have. In, like I remember they when have. Uh, gay marriage was stricken down. I was still uh, converting to Orthodoxy and like. The bishops like made the, all the priests read a statement, basically, you know what you would expect them to say about it, mm. and that was honestly like one of the things that kind of started to push me towards leaving was that little bit. Yeah, yeah, that that uh, that makes sense. And I mean, you know, obviously there are Orthodox people with with much better views on that stuff, but like, yeah, there's oh, yeah. a sense that Orthodoxy does resep- represent. It doesn't represent power in the U.S., and so because of that, it's easy to forget that it represents power in other places. Um, yeah, and that it's still like very much a patriarchal religion. Like I definitely, yeah, I would move back between uh, Tennessee and Ohio when I was in college. Just like I'd go back home to Ohio for the summers. Um, and the church I went to there, I got the vibe that the priest was more liberal. Like he had a, I believe a, I believe he was ethnically Russian. Um, mm-hmm. and was just, I got the vibe from him that he would be chill with women's ordination if it were to become an issue, but he knows that it's not, so he's just not going to push it. Right. Sure. Like when someone talked about women in leadership, that seemed to be his, his approach, but like, well, it's a hard battle to fight, especially in the U S because, because it doesn't represent like, yeah, you know, a, a majority of the church in any way too. So like, and like, that's just going to lead to the same sort of you know issues with the global church and like that would introduce schism potentially which is a very big Mm -hmm. deal to the orthodox like because there's this notion that like the institution is the true church of christ like yeah this this spiritual authority rests within this specific institution and if the the continuity with the institution is damaged then like the whole thing is cut off right right yeah absolutely um which is hard like it's hard because I, I'm sympathetic to that that fear of schism because I think that that's you know yeah because because I think if you're a Christian you should be fearful of schism like it's not yeah. good but also like I don't know there there's some issues that are worth pushing yeah it's like divorce it's like <laughs> yeah it's always regrettable but like often for the best yeah yeah I, I hope you, you know, would accept that descriptor. Oh yeah, I, I I would as a divorcee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, absolutely. And like, I mean, yeah, it's 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 not it's not ideal, but yeah. But the, the you know, on the other hand, is like I understand the the hesitance toward it because I think the uh, the Protestant a lot of Protestant traditions are are addicted to schism. Like yes. like Baptists are just addicted to schisming. Like there's a thousand yeah. millions of Baptist denominations, and yeah, yeah, and you know that's not good. But um, but yeah, like I do think that the the Orthodox Church probably deserves some challenging, especially. I, I well, I think the Greek Greek Orthodox 
I, I don't understand the the politics of this super well, so correct me if I'm wrong. But isn't there's tension between the Greek and or Greek and Russian Orthodox churches right now over politics, right? I, aren't they like not in a communion yeah. or something? I, I don't remember exactly um, how it, they're doing it. I I am not sure about that specific situation right now. I like there have been issues with like temporary like excommunication, but like they'll still remain in communion with other bishops who are in communion with the original bishops. So like by the transitive property mm. you would think they would be in communion but apparently that's not how that works it's 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 yeah. complicated. like the jurisdictional politics are very byzantine and when you get to the united states and everything is connected to these ethnic communities who have brought their own churches with them from from the old country yeah it's like even more complicated right because you have like and i also i think it's funny you said it's very byzantine that's a that's a funny little pun yeah, because uh, there's the Byzantine Orthodox Church, but uh, yeah. Byzantine chant. It's like, yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yeah, you have like somebody who's like, okay, they're they're Greek Orthodox because they're from Greece, and then you have a Russian Orthodox person, and they're from Russia, and then they both immigrate for because of wars, because of whatever. They both land in you know uh, somewhere in Tennessee. They need a church. And they end up either in a church that they don't technically belong to, like a Greek one and a Russian person has to attend, or end up with two separate Orthodox churches that technically belong to different geographical (laughs) (laughs) authorities. Yeah, but they're uh, but they're technically down the street from each other or something. It's yeah, very strange. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and it largely depends which one of those happens largely depends on how many Greeks and Russians there are, like whether it's more practical to assimilate or to like have your own community. Cause there's also a Greek Orthodox church in Memphis that is predominantly uh non-convert, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly like there's more Greek people in Memphis than there are Arab Christians. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think that's something that, um, you know, I, I guess I don't know enough about, but, the the relationship especially like with russia with current geopolitical events that's that's a tension i i know with a lot of the orthodox church well especially i mean like ukraine is also an orthodox country like there's Mm -hmm. you know predominantly anyway and like it's the church in both countries like tends to be supportive of it of the powers that be in that country and like there's an interesting history to this in that the russian orthodox community in japan what was allowed to exist uh, prayed for the emperor of Japan during the Russo-Japanese War. Like there was sort of this, this uh, which chapter in Romans is it? The oh yeah, the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's sort of that notion to, to it traditionally, um, and like that has often meant that the church in those countries is in bed with whoever is in power. And mm-hmm. in Russia right now, like that is not a great look at least no no well and that's that's i think what i i have nothing i i don't think this is all orthodox or whatever but that's something i've always struggled with with catholic and orthodox stuff and why i still am kind of just protestant um yeah is yeah they do kind of end up in this weird relationship with the state that i don't love now that being said i'm an anglican and we've got our own (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) versions of that for sure but I don't know. Why are there so it's... many Anglicans in all these former British colonies? That's, that's <laughs> Whoa, what's going on there? <laughs> yeah. The the way I like justify it in my head with relation to the English crown is that technically the Episcopal church split um, yeah. over that because they were, they supported the, the Republican government. So that's cool. Yeah. It's just now we're a state church of uh, the evil American empire now. So yeah, I mean, cool. Uh, awesome. Bush senior was <laughs> Episcopalian among like many, many yeah, other yeah. prominent representatives of American evil. Isn't there, isn't there like a stained glass window of Robert E. Lee at the national cathedral or something? <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah, I think that's true. Or like one donated by him or something. <laughs> We've got some issues. Uh... <laughs> I mean, so, they have you know, national <laughs> cathedral. Like, I feel like that speaks for itself, right? Like, oh yeah, I mean, like that, the, like, you know. yeah, the cathedral of the U.S. is Episcopalian, but I don't know. And I, I, that's something I've just like been working through because I think I'm more and more like radical in that front, where like I just do not yeah. think that the church should have a state. A relationship with the state and and not even just because of the um 
the kind of normal liberal, you know, kind of point where it's like, oh, you know, that 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 churches shouldn't be legislating. Yeah. But it's also the other way around that I kind of more and more believe the state's like a corrupting force. Definitely. You know? Yeah. And like and that it, is it, definitely like something I would associate more with like the radical reformation in terms of Protestant history. This is why I like Hauerwas, because he's like one of my only the only guys in the main line that's making this point also. Because <laughs> yeah. it's mostly radical reformers. <laughs> yeah. The Anabaptist man, like they they had some they had some points. Like I'll give I'll give them that. Yeah, I'll um, give them that. I'll give them that. <laughs> what uh so, where do you land these days, uh, out of curiosity, just based off this history we've talked a bit about with you? Kind of a Christmas and Easter Christian at this point. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the last church I attended regularly that didn't really survive COVID as a community was United Methodist. Okay. Um, very like hyper progressive United Methodist. Like, yeah. How did they, uh, how did they respond to God? Cause that was, that was 2019. Was it that they officially denounced gay marriage? Or um, was just, that not, they just ignored it. <laughs> I think, yeah, no, they were never, uh, they were, they were always like very explicitly affirming. Like I first hmm. visited them. They had like a neighborhood event that I went to with my roommate. And like the first thing they told us was like, and we're, you know, very gay affirming. Like, and I'm right, like, yeah. I don't know if they thought my roommate and I were a couple, but like, I, I really, I still really appreciated that. Yeah. I appreciate it either way. Um, For sure. <laughs> actually that's, that's the definition of, um, uh, kind-hearted, but maybe uh, incorrect mainline lib stuff too. Is oh, just yeah. seeing two but, two like, guys and being like, "Hey, we're gay affirming, by the way." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just in case, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean, like, honestly, like it was going to, you know, be part of the conversation sooner or later, and so like I think, yeah, yeah. they wanted to me know where they stood, and I appreciated their stance. Like they, you know, no, it's always. Good, yeah super affirming which is just not what i experienced in like my evangelical upbringing or in orthodoxy and i really appreciated that about them but have not been connected with the church in the same way since yeah i am trying to remember um i don't i don't know the denomination too well but i I technically went to a methodist college Mm. um and it was a big crisis in the college um when i think it was in 2019 they officially said that they don't support gay marriage um, cause I think the model before then was like a church by church basis where like the priests could kind of decide their stance on that. Um, yeah. and then they, they voted to crack down on it and it was, it was, it was just a big deal because, you know, there were a lot of people who were religion majors in that yeah. college who were planning to go into ministry and were gay. Oh, yeah. And part of the reason they chose the denomination was because the denomination was chill with that. Um, and then they were freaking yeah. out like, oh shit, I, you know, I've been getting trained in this denomination, and I I don't think I can belong here anymore. But that's anyway. yeah, that's really shitty. Like, yeah, it really sucks. I, I mean, I know they always maintain this very self consciously affirming identity in this particular congregation, and that's in good. kind of their like they were a mission technically of another congregation, um, and that one they had like an stations of the cross paintings that were themed after LGBT history. Oh wow which I, cool. I didn't get to see in person, but like it, yeah, it seemed like a, yeah, that's very cool. All right. So, so you were, you were in this United Methodist church was like the last church you were kind of going in before, um, just kind of fell off yeah. COVID. And then at college, you were like at EOS playing with the EOC a bit, I guess like, well, kinda, what, the what, what is, Oh, sorry. The Antioch was not the yeah. EOC at that point, but it did with a congregation that did have like a history that went right. That's right. ESC. Yeah. So, um, I guess like how, how do you get from point A to point B where, where's that kind of journey there, I guess. Um, I mean, I want to give an illustrative anecdote of what a shitty male feminist I am. Okay. To begin yeah. with, <laughs> which is that I struggled with abortion for a while, just like how I felt about it. Like I was raised Southern Baptist, wanted to become sure, yeah. like, you know, ethical prohibitions on abortion are like very strong in both of those religious communities. Right. And right. but like I started to rethink it for a while. And the thing that finally flipped the switch in my mind and made me pro choice 
was Louis C.K.'s special of 2017. <laughs> Which is like, in hindsight, like the worst possible way to arrive at that conclusion. Oh, just man. Like, he makes, like he opens the set talking about abortion because he's like, I'm such a big comic. I can do this right now. And yeah. like basically like makes the case for being pro-choice in a way that's like very crass but direct and like has an internal logic to it that I was just like, that was when that final switch flipped for me. And that was the kind of voice I was listening to at that time that was like influencing yeah. my thinking on the matter. Yeah, that, um, that anecdote is not aged well remotely, but that's no, hilarious. like literally the year that special <laughs> came out. Like that was his last one before it um was in major news outlets, you know? Like Yeah, yeah. But oh, man. <laughs> uh I did have his you know some feminist leanings in college and like honestly going back and forth between ohio and tennessee like i saw like the more chill liberal priest in ohio and how he did things and then i saw how church in memphis did things and like one thing that stood out to me was that um women never read the epistle at the church in memphis i don't know mm. if this was directed from the bishop or if this was like the choice of the priest or what i never really asked about it but like traditionally men do all the readings in church but the only thing that's specifically set aside for men are the gospel reading and anything the priest does. Mm -hmm. um, women are allowed to do the epistle reading. They're allowed to, you know, do other readings in, in church, but like the gospel reading is like explicitly set aside for men. And so at the one in Ohio, um, they would only have men do the gospel reading, but everything else was open to women. The one in Tennessee, like everything was just sort of restricted to men. And it just started to bug me and i started thinking like you know i don't ultimately like i saw that there are still battles to be had within orthodoxy that like just aren't mine to fight like sure it felt really disingenuous to join myself to an organization when i also decided that i disagreed with it on some fundamental things and it it's an organization that demands obedience you know and it's right. like they're already a part of that like you know i can understand why you would choose to be defiant at points, but like, mm -hmm. like I, I can totally respect people who are in the Orthodox church and who are queer or who are affirming and mm -hmm. like want, or who, you know, women and just want to change the, these things about it. But at the same time, like I'm just an outsider coming in, you know? And like, yeah. it was also just a really long process to convert and just, I, I'd gotten frustrated with it. And come to the conclusion that it was time to leave and then i just sort of uh returned to protestantism because like that was i came to a sense of religion that like i think is more common to like people raised orthodox for example or people who are catholic or people who are jewish sometimes is that like this is the faith tradition that i've inherited and it's mine and like mm -hmm. i'll do with it what i want you know and like I wasn't gonna do that with someone else's tradition, but I felt like I have the right to do that with Protestantism. And there's already plenty of people who have gone before me and done exactly that, and have gone in really interesting yeah. directions. Some have gone much further yeah. than I would, but you know, like it's it's a tradition yeah. that it's a tradition in its own right. I learned like there's you know this tradition with a capital T in Orthodoxy, the Holy Tradition, that like preserves continuity with the ancient Church, and it's like. That's a really beautiful notion, but in practice, it just leads to authentication. And like, I like the dynamism of Protestantism, I guess. I like, in a way, I like that it can be prone to schism because like it, it speaks to like the strength of conviction that people have within mm -hmm. it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I was going to say like that, that's everything you just kind of said was pretty relatable to me because I was flirting with Catholicism for a brief period yeah i remember um, that yeah so what was yeah go if you don't mind speak sh sharing like what was how far did you go and like looking into it and like what eventually made you stop yeah um i you know i it was during covid that i was really thinking a lot yeah. about catholicism and and you know a little before that but i hadn't gotten i hadn't gotten the courage to go to mass and then by the time covid happened i couldn't go to mass so that's in part i never really even attended it but i was reading a lot about it and uh you know yeah. part of my attraction was you know like i i came to a lot of my political views and a lot of my 
religious convictions even through like liberation theology um which is you know catholic at least latin american liberation theology is catholic and and dorothy day is still one of my favorite um you know figures in history but if dorothy day were a normative figure in catholicism i would become catholic but she's not exactly and that and that was a big part of it was was that um the the other side is like you know there was all these things i hoops i had to jump through so one of them is just that i was a divorcee and there was a lot of shit that that would cause if i wanted to get married again it's just like it'd be a whole headache of legal shit and there was a part of me that just started getting really frustrated at that where i was like you know why do i have to fucking figure this whole legal thing out just so that i can like love god in a church yeah and that 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 made me mad and and i don't want to shit on like catholicism to anyone who's listening who's who's in that world but that was what i yeah. found incredibly frustrating and then i also in college had a had a gay roommate um and around that oh god what was it what was uh, i think it was 2021 i think was the moment that kind of killed it for me officially it was either or no it, yeah yeah it was either beginning it was either the end of 2020 or beginning of 2021 pope francis officially said that the church's stance on gay marriage will not be changing yeah and you know like i was like uh and this is you know the progressive this pope, like supposedly yeah this is the progressive pope and and my you know my lesbian roommate will never be able to would never be able to go to this church yeah. And that was like what was going through my head. And I was just like, I, I don't know, <laughs> you yeah. know, like I, I don't, I don't, I understand that. And so I have that. Then I also have my kind of Calvinist side of my theology as well. And I justified that a bit because I follow someone on Twitter that I think you probably do too, who is, uh, you know, into, into Jansenism and into kind of the, um, this, this mashup of Calvinism and, and Catholicism. So I was like, yeah. okay, yeah, there's a route for this. This exists. Yeah. And then it was like, it's like, okay, so I could maybe fit in with that. And then it's like, okay, but I'm going in and I'm disagreeing with the Catholic Church's views on uh, abortion, on gay marriage, on all these things. And I'm a Calvinist. I'm not Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah. Like, it just kind of was like, I'm, it was the same thing as you were saying. Where it's like, I don't want to join a tradition that I'm going to disagree with like 80% of it. <laughs> just, right. Just doesn't like make there, any sense. Yeah, there still are like plenty of things from orthodoxy that like influence my understanding of things. Like, yeah, a lot same of the Catholicism is pretty yeah. profound. Yeah. Like, I would say Maria Skopsova is like another a comparable figure in orthodoxy to like what you were saying about Dorothy Day, to where like, um, you know, if that were the normative figure, like I would I would join this in a heartbeat, but like she wasn't. And are you familiar with her? Uh, yeah, I, I know the name, but I'm not super familiar. I should say if it's not totally digital, I can just talk about her for a bit because she's a really fascinating figure. You, yeah, you should go for it. Okay, let's kill some fucking time. Um, let's do it. <laughs> this is definitely going to be just like a more casual conversation episode, but I'm I'm here. I'm totally fine with that. Maria Skopsova was a SR politician from Russia turned nun turned theologian who became like. Like minister to like poor Russian emigre communities in Paris, and yeah, eventually uh, during the occupation of France by the Nazis, she would like help forge baptismal certificates for Jews so they could pass as Christian, and mm. like did all this other shit to like help people flee persecution from the Nazi occupiers. And uh, died in a concentration camp for it. Wow! So she is like considered her, she she was canonized <laughs> as a saint in the Orthodox Church, um, kind of because of her martyrdom. But like you actually read her theology because she wrote theology, and it is different from anything you've read before in a way that's like in conversation with kind of the vanguard of Orthodox theology at the time, which is just coming from a very different place than Protestant or Catholic theology. Mm-hmm. Like her piece on the mysticism of the human communion um is one i will give a shout out to here it's just one i return to continually in that like i don't know when i'm feel closer to believing in god uh like really really inspires me and inspires my view of god and of how we relate to god in humanity no that's that sounds like a very cool figure and i, I was going to mention uh just from that story as it, it did strike me her her faking back to baptismal certificates because you know this was a this is a bit of a problem with sometimes the rosy colored eyes we have toward um christians in germany and france who were shielding jews um, yeah from the nazis because a lot of like i i think it's i i don't want to speak to anything concrete 
statistical or anything like exactly where how how much this happened but i know there was a lot of like yeah we're gonna save this this jew from getting persecuted by baptizing them and mm. you know then it's like well they are removing their their judaism yeah. and that was never um, the intention like for, for yeah like, like and that's that's what struck me is she's she didn't just go why not get baptized you know, she yeah. she was like, I get why you're not getting baptized. And yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I uh, yeah, those are the kind of figures that like keep Christianity compelling. You know, because I I get really fucking frustrated with Christianity like a lot. Um, oh yeah, no, completely. <laughs> and it's like there are times where I, where I do tune out completely, but it's ultimately like it's too much a part of me, and it's too like mm-hmm. there's this other side to it. There's like this counter hegemonic side that like exists in all these different situations. And like, it's really fucking inspiring. Yeah. Like that's the, that's the part I want to be a part of, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm always, I'm always moved by like, like St. Francis, um, like the, yeah. the OG medieval, right. You know, that yes. like, yes, you absolutely. know, that this, you know, he's, he's an example of this kind of like good Christianity. And I just, it, it's frustrating that it's not always been that way. And it's often not that way. But like when it is that way, it's it's a really beautiful thing. Um, yeah. But I don't know. Um, I I really like though your talk about just kind of embracing the Protestantism as a tradition from what you were raised as, because I mean that's basically what happened with me. And yeah. even my return to the Episcopal Church, there were so many moments where it hit me where I was like, yeah, this is the denomination I belong in, even if I have a lot of issues with them. Because I didn't really, you know, I got confirmed in the Episcopal Church, but like I understand, like it didn't ever feel fully unnatural. Like, yeah, because I mean, like I grew up in a, you know, like Reformed church and we sung a lot of hymns, like traditional hymns. And as I'm singing them in in the Episcopal Church, I'm like, oh, hey, you know, I know these. Yeah. My upbringing. And, you know, there's something like just kind of high church that was floating around even though i was you know raised evangelical for the most part it was it just felt like i was kind of embracing a more liberal version of exactly what i was raised with and that was a good feeling you know synthesizing it yeah like ultimately i didn't want to bring all my protestant baggage somewhere else you know like there's so many places in protestant i can take it and like like growing up baptist and then going to you know uh I attended an ELCA church for a while and then a UMC mm. church um, that I was talking about earlier. And I also went to an ACNA high school. Oh, wow. Um, Which, uh, for those who do not know what the ACNA, because I, I know sometimes if somebody's not a religious listener and then we get oh, into yeah, denomination no, like, talk, we start doing alphabet soup. About, <laughs> like denominational politics here. Uh, yeah, if you're not familiar, you, you know, so the, the Episcopal Church is the Anglican Church in America, and then there is a split off from the Episcopal Church called the ACNA, that's the Anglican Church in North America, and it, I mean, did it split of, I, over the gay rights issue? Was that the main thing? I think women's ordination initially, and then gay rights choice. Yeah, then, so they're the like conservative it's, like it's a merger ones. of, like, several groups that split from the Episcopal Church throughout history. Um, like going back to the 19th century, like there are people who felt that the liberal influence was too strong and wanted to, and like over time, these different groups that have split off merged into the ACNA, which is under the jurisdiction of Anglican bishops in Africa who are more conservative generally. I did not know that they were under that jurisdiction. That's interesting. Yes. Um, and like formally under Anglican canon law, I don't think they're allowed to have jurisdiction there, but they do it. So hmm. that is a point of contention for sure. Yeah. So they, 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 that's how they claim like <clears throat> sort of membership in the broader Anglican communion is through that and like apostolic succession and everything else. Like all those aspects of Anglican theology are important to them, but also they lost the fight over women's ordination and gay rights. So yeah. Yeah. It's the, um, it's it, it I, I i have like contempt toward the acna i know there are good people in it but i i do because it's like yeah. half the half the fucking reason i joined the episcopal church is because it's gay affirming and because it has women priests and then yeah. just like starting a separate denomination to get rid of that just like pisses me off when i think about it but yeah you know <laughs> which like the church my high school's part of also came out of a kind of charismatic tradition like they oh, weird. They were like a non-denominational church that was eventually almost like a smaller scale version of the story of the EOC, right? It's like this non-denominational church like gets into that kind of restorationist impulse to like 
be part of authentic Christianity and concludes we need to be in communion with the larger church and one that's like rooted in history. And so they go for like either in their, in this case, Anglicanism. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's interesting of itself. I mean, I guess you could make the case because, because there's apostolic succession that it goes back, but I think the, it's kind of funny to me to imagine like, we got to get back to the, the acts church, you know, we, we should check out the Anglicans. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, it's like they wanted to have that connection, but still be Protestant, you know? like yeah which like, is why it, i'm in it but you know, yeah. like, i i i wish there were more um yeah i know this is a loaded term too but i i like i wish there were more inclusive orthodox church like denominations and churches you know like churches that stick to this this impulse that you both of us kind of had here and what kind of has driven a lot of this conversation to like be part of a tradition that goes back you know but also yeah. has like liberal aspects because because I do believe that you can have an affirming theology or a theology that does not denigrate women without it being contradictory to the Bible or to historic theology and tradition. I think that's very possible. And I think yeah. it frustrates me that so few churches want to do that. Like when they go liberal, they start being like, well, you know, like maybe maybe the Nicene Creed isn't that important or something. And rather than just being like almost kind of conservative liturgically and liberal yeah. in regard to social issues like that's I think a lot of people actually want that maybe or maybe a lot of the people I follow on Twitter want that maybe. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it doesn't certainly like I enjoy the. Like, I, I can appreciate things that make you feel connected to a broader tradition. I've just sort of come to accept that's not, like, as much of a priority for me, I guess, as it used to be. Because mm, yeah, yeah. I've come to accept that, like, whatever tradition you're in, like, is going to have had its innovations. And, like, yeah. we're in this, you know, American context where, like, specifically as, like, American Protestants, where, like, you know, you'd see new people in church, you ask them what they're doing, oh, and we're church shopping, like, we're consumers of religion. Yeah. And like, we, we have this approach to it. That's like, you know, suits our identity as consumers because like we have just so many different choices and there was something appealing about being a part of something that's mostly just forced on people, you know, like you're bad. Yeah, that's not that. Yeah. Like in the Orthodox church, like infants are baptized and chrismated and like fed communion. Like babies get a get a little, little sip sip of the wine with the, with the bread in it. Yeah, yeah. And like, there's like it's 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 something that you know people people spend their entire lives in, and like, but actually joining that of your own volition just requires commitments I wasn't going to make, and mm-hmm. that like don't even necessarily reflect how orthodoxy is lived among you know ordinary Greek or Russian or you know whatever people. Yeah, because they were born into it, you know. Right. Yeah. Like, one thing I actually struggled with in Orthodoxy was fasting, because the the monks have had so much influence on, like, how, like, what the official rules are for Orthodoxy, that basically there are mandated fasts every Wednesday and Friday from, like, all meat and dairy products. Mm -hmm. And, like, every Wednesday and Friday, and then for the entirety of Lent, and, uh, you know, uh, for Advent or and that just becomes like that was just something i really struggled with like i, I did not have i i can blame myself for it my lack of self-control you know like that's that that's totally fair yeah. but at the same time it's like i'm not like if i were just an ordinary greek guy who got baptized i would have a fucking hamburger on a friday and think nothing of it yeah like, bro, i suppose yeah well that's that's the thing because i think when you convert to something you like you want to own it you, it's it yeah. feels really disrespectful to convert to something and then immediately start violating it exactly um, exactly yeah absolutely uh, that's why you got to convert to a completely liberal denomination that has no restrictions at all <laughs> yeah like that's i mean that's where i wound up and like that you know like that's still broadly where i identify i i have been meaning to start going to church more regularly it's just hard to get back into the habit of it i, I it's hard for me to be in the habit of it and i'm a confirmed episcopalian yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, which is so I, weird I, just how like since i grew up a pk like it's it was so 
ubiquitous my early life. So like omnipresent, like mm-hmm. such a weird routine to break ever. Like, but I, I broke out of it and now it's like, it's hard to get back. Same. Yep. Same. Th- I mean, well, I'm not a pastor's kid, but same, same kind of. Sorry. Situation. Again with the acronyms here. Oh yeah. No, yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> that was my subtle way of doing that. But you know, I'm not one of, I'm not a pastor's kid, but I, uh, you know, same thing where had a church church attending upbringing. And when I, when I fell out of attending church, when I was like 18 or 19, it was a very weird thing where it was always like, oh, I'll get to, I'll do it. I'll do it eventually. And that yeah. just didn't. But I, you know, now I think one thing that I, I have liked about converting, like it's not even really a conversion, but getting confirmed in the Episcopal church and that being like the tradition I've just decided I kind of am in yeah. is that, um, I don't know. It hit me recently that I'm no long. I'm not, I have not lost my status of being an Episcopalian if I haven't gone to church in a month. Yeah. And that's that's been kind of nice where it, it's not quite the same, but it feels like I've started to take on the relationship to, to it that like people with an ethnic identity attached to a religion will have where it's just like, it's just what I am, you know? Yeah. And like, yeah, it, it is what it is. And if I, if I fuck up for a f- couple months, that's fine. I'll, I'll get back and I will, I will do it. <laughs> Like God is merciful. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, like, honestly, it's hard to good. If I had fully converted to orthodoxy, like I feel like there's an alternate version of me that's like managed to follow through with it and then is still in it, but like not particularly active or devout at all. Mm-hmm. Because like, I, I would definitely, I, I see the comfort in like just having an identity, which is why I just consider myself broadly Protestant because like it anchors me in something, even though I'm not, you know, particularly confident in anything I believe theologically. Like I, <laughs> like, I don't know. You talk about people on Twitter. Like, there are people I'm envious of how how confidently they can assert themselves theologically. Like, oh yeah, God, I I feel that because I mean, my my religious beliefs have always been like shaped by doubt. Like my loss of faith, my slow return to the faith came through like death of God theology. Yeah, um, are you a Peter very, guy. I was a Peter Rollins guy, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I, I eventually left that, but I I needed to go through a phase of even if it's not true, it's still good, was kind of like the mentality I needed to have yeah, um, to get me there. But that's, you know, and so th- that's the thing is I've just kind of come to grips with the fact I'm always going to have like a really doubt-filled relationship with religion, but that that's also like welcome in the church, in the right churches anyway. You know, that's actually mm-hmm. like maybe even a good thing, you know, like being a skeptical person in the church is like maybe a a role that people should play. Um, and I, I've owned it to a point. I actually have, I've mentioned this on shows before, but I have a Eastern Orthodox icon that I'm looking at right now that I own. That's a little icon of St. Thomas, uh, touching Jesus's wounds. Oh yeah. Yeah. Who is for those who don't know, considered kind of the patron saint of doubt because he, he doubted, um, when Jesus appears to the disciples, he's like, ah, you can't be real. And it takes until Jesus tells him to, to feel the, the wounds in his, in his side and hands before he believes. You also wrote a really good song about that. Oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Um, the reason that story is really uh, stuck with me too, is because I had a pastor um, and I was, I was lucky enough to have an evangelical pastor who said a good thing, which is often rare when people talk about memories with the evangelical pastors. But he had said that, you know, Thomas was an important figure because he was the only one who had gotten to touch the wounds. He's the only one that got that kind of intimate relationship with Christ. Yeah. Um, and that, that's been really influential to me. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's beautiful. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, I think it's like. Uh, um. Well, I think we we have hit like an hour and twenty or something like that, which is pretty good. Um, do you okay. want to wrap up or do you want to keep? I'm enjoying chatting, so I'm fine either way. But I, I mean, is there anything else you'd want to talk about? Like, uh, nothing specific comes to mind. But I do like kind of how this turned into kind of more a personal conversation about religion. I kind of like that. So yeah. Yeah, I started, you know, specifically talking about this this one group that interests me, mm-hmm. like, and but yeah, that was um, a group I'm only tangentially connected to, but still like have played a meaningful role in my spiritual development. Like, there's still parts of Orthodoxy that like really yeah, appeal to me. Important to you? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's something to like um, traditions that you pull from, but don't fully identify with. Yeah. Um, I th- I think that that's probably more common than a lot of like religious writers usually let on to, but. You know, like I, I, I have been very much influenced by a lot of thinking from the Catholic world, from the Orthodox world, from you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good to pull from that stuff. I'm, I'm an ecumenicist, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm ecumenical Protestant. I guess, guess is how I, how I'd say it. Like, well, um, well, I really enjoyed this like little conversation about the EOC and, uh, and kind of your personal faith. Getting into that, so. Um, yeah, I guess I guess we could probably wrap up here. Um, do you have anywhere that you would like people to, like follow you on or whatever? Um, I'm still on Twitter. Um, as of time of recording, that is a website that exists. <laughs> um, and you can follow me at gross underscore online. I don't post very often, but I, I you know, I'm a fun guy to have around. I'll, yeah. I'll be. He joins Twitter Spaces. Google. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll join your Twitter Space maybe if my phone isn't dying. awesome all right well thank you so much joseph this was a blast so all right thank Um, you we'll we'll have to we'll have to have you on again yeah no if there's anything you'd want me to talk about like let me know absolutely